listening to another episode of Grace Matters, conversations establishing believers in the truth. The previous episode of the Grace Matters podcast was the beginning of a conversation between Neil Manning and Father James Gerges, who serves an Eastern Orthodox Church in Fuquay, Varina. The previous episode, which hopefully you've heard at this point, is a great overview of church history from the perspective of the Eastern Orthodox. As we continue into this week's episode, we'll get to hear more about how the Eastern Orthodox Church functions. So here's that conversation between Neil and Father James. Um, it is a couple of hundred years after that that uh, America finds its birthing. How does um, the, the Eastern Church uh, become known or move to America? So it, that's a really good question, and I'm not um, probably the best person to to answer it thoroughly because I'm not a I'm not a, like a church historian. But I can tell you that. Um, there were actually, believe it or not, some of the founders of, of the United States knew of the Orthodox Church mm. from Russia. They had dealt with, um, uh, we, we have a couple of our founding fathers who had been ambassadors to Russia and um, had traveled there and had studied um, Orthodoxy uh, a little bit. There is a gentleman, I'm trying to think of his name off the top of my head now. It was an American gentleman, Colonel Philip Ludwell. Mm. And uh, as we've dug into his writings, we found that he uh, had encountered orthodoxy um, and that he was traveling in the circles of folks like Benjamin Franklin. Uh, he also had even uh, transcribed and, and written the liturgy in English, uh, certain liturgies that had come from... Um, the Russian language, he had actually translated them into English, like the, the pre-sanctified liturgy that we use during uh, the season of Lent. It's really fascinating. So he's really early on. And then we have missionaries who come in the uh, 19th century. Uh, many of those missionaries came from Russia and they traveled uh, to Alaska. Because you, 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 know, you don't from think Asia about the United States that way right. because you look at a map and you think that the end of the world is on this side, but actually, you know, it's a sphere. And so, uh, yeah, they traveled, they missionized and Christianized the people of Alaska. And if you go and you travel to Alaska, you'll find that in, in certain parts of Alaska, all the people are Orthodox Christians and there are Orthodox churches in Alaska. Um, so that's the mostly the... Uh, the, the native Alaskans, obviously, not uh, you know the people who have moved there, there in, since in, then in the last <laughs> few years uh, or last few decades. So that is the start of of orthodoxy in North America, and then of course um, you have immigrants moving to this country, and as they move to this country, you have the church trying to uh, look after their people. And, and making sure that there's a, a shepherd or, or someone to guide and protect the people, uh, their spiritual lives, uh, to uh, keep them uh, in holy orthodoxy as well. And so then we have priests and uh, bishops who are sent over here. And uh, among those, uh, St. Raphael of Brooklyn, 
St. Raphael of Brooklyn, who is his icon, is right there behind me. St. Raphael of Brooklyn uh, came here as a priest first and uh, ministered to the folks who had come from Syria. Okay. But just to show you how uh, the, the much cooperation there is in the life of the church, he was ministering to Syrians, but he was technically under the Russian Orthodox Church. Really? And he had, uh, he had done some of his schooling and education in uh, Kiev, hmm. uh, which I guess is now Ukraine, modern, mm. modern Ukraine. Uh, so uh, he came to the United States. He ministered to the people. He, he, he went from village to village, from town to town, and gathered the Syrian immigrants. And uh, then over the course of time, the Russian church chose him to become a bishop in North America. Hmm. And they consecrated him here on American soil so that he would begin the process of then being able to ordain his own uh, uh, people to become priests, men to become mm -hmm. priests, and to serve in the life of the church in North America. Well, that's interesting. So um, the Antioch, would, would that be Syrian Antioch? Yes, yes. Is, is, that, that again shows the cooperation between jurisdictions that uh, he was um, when it, sent by, I, ideally yeah ideally you know uh, the church is, is is full of fallen human beings oh yes yeah and uh, because of that you still have you know silly things of, of infighting and mm. uh, there's no like ideal perfect situation you still have uh, politics in the life of the church. Yeah. Well, as as dim of pictures that that is, it's actually encouraging to hear that um, no organization is going to escape the human frailty. Um, mm -hmm. But but through the power of God, we can uh, continue growing, growing in in holiness. Um, before we move to more of the theological distinctives of orthodoxy. Are there anything, any events um, perhaps in the last century that uh, really stand out for you, either for the Eastern Orthodox Church or for the church in America? You know, one of the events in the life of the Antiochian Orthodox Church here in North America that stands out for me is uh, in the... Um, I believe it was in the mid-1980s. There was a, uh, a group of men who uh, were really all... Um, many of them were part of the, the Jesus movement mm. that happened out of Berkeley, California. Uh, I believe that movement began in like the 60s. 60s, right. And then um, some of those men actually were among the founding members and, and uh, they were in the leadership of Campus Crusade for Christ. Uh, folks like uh, Jack Sparks, uh, Peter Gilquist. Um, there's a couple of others. Some of their names are slipping my mind. They, they at some point used to have a retreat every uh, year, the, these these. Uh, pastors, they were all considered bishops within their own churches. And um, they were 
non-denominational. They were Protestants. They, they, they were asking this question, what happened to the early church? So they began a series of, uh, of, of retreats and studies together. And once a year for something like one week, they would all meet together in one place and each one would have had one year to research one particular uh, aspect of the life of the Christian church. Hmm. One would go and do the research on baptism, one on communion, one on clergy, bishops, priests, whatever the case may be. They would go out and then they would come together, pray, study, go through this. And at some point they came to the realization that it was the early church is the Orthodox church, the modern Orthodox church. And they wanted to join that church. And at some point in the mid-1980s, they were received into the Antiochian Orthodox Church. 2,000 of them were received on the same day. And all of those men who had been bishops uh, in their respective churches, they were brought into the church and they were ordained as priests. The bishops told them, you cannot be bishops. (laughs) (laughs) You you have no legitimate uh, claim to, to be bishops. We will allow you to lead the churches uh, with your people as priests. And uh, so 2,000 in one day were brought into the church. I think that that was one of those watershed moments for orthodoxy in North America. And uh, up till now, in our Antiochian Archdiocese, about 70% of our clergy are converts. They, they are not people who were born into the Orthodox Church, mm. um, which I think is pretty amazing, really. Uh, I've, I've read some statistics, and, and you might have um, more up-to-date ones, uh, but together, the Orthodox Church makes up, um, I guess, the second largest Christian church in the world. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. And uh, is it around 10% of Christians in America? Is that what I read? You know, the the Orthodox Church is definitely the second largest church in the world behind the Roman Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. I think in in uh, North America, it's much smaller than ten percent. Smaller than ten. Oh yeah, yeah. I would even, you know, I don't even know if it's. I don't know exactly what percentage it would be, mm-hmm. but it's small. Uh, I don't think one out of every ten people you meet in North America are Orthodox. Uh-huh. No. Uh-huh. Uh, it's small, and part of the reason is that the immigration from Orthodox lands came after the immigration from other um, uh, lands like the Roman Catholic, Western European, mm-hmm. yeah, Western Church. I- Irish, Italian, so forth. No, the Greeks came later, and the Russians came later. On top of that. What happens in the first few generations is you will have a group that tries to maintain their ethnic and cultural identity much more tightly. Mm. They use their own language. They stick with their own people, their own tribe. Slower to expand. It's slower. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so uh, it doesn't necessarily make inroads into the society around it, which mm-hmm. is a shame in some ways because um, we need to do that. Yeah, that's part of the the the, the great commission. Is to grow. Is to grow. It's to invite people the to East to the life spread. of Christ. If what we have is actually special 
and unique and 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 genuine then we have to invite the rest of the world to participate in it and to grow in Christ yeah um, as we kind of bridge over into a more theological exploration of, of the Eastern Church um, I will say that those uh, Orthodox priests that that I've listened to the literature that I've read for me is um, it can be challenging but it's, it's difficult because I will read the first portion and say, yes, that's clear, I agree with it, but they finish the same paragraph with something that is, in my understanding, seems to be almost completely opposed to the very thing that they were explaining. Mm. And for me, that it, it makes it very difficult. Well, do I agree? Do I disagree? What What is the point trying to be, be made here? And I think that that may point to a different way of thinking yeah. that occurs in the East than many of us who grew up uh, with the culture of the West are familiar with. Can you kind of explore and explain a little bit of the, the different ways of thinking between East and West? Yes, I mean, I think the fundamental difference is, well, there, there's a couple of them. Uh, let, me, let me hit on one. One is that the Western world... And its way of thinking is largely a byproduct of the Roman Catholic Church and the Roman Catholic Church's influence, which led to rationalism. If you go and you study the Roman Catholic Church and you study Thomas Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas had had created his Summa Theologica, and, and in that he basically lays Christian teaching and thought in in uh, Aristotelian terms. <clears throat> and in doing that, he tries to reason and rationalize everything through a Greek philosophical narrative and, and framework. Which then says to us that if we only study enough and understand enough here intellectually we can really grasp and know God. Mm. I would say the Orthodox understanding is really opposed to that. And the Orthodox understanding is that we don't ultimately understand God here. We understand God here through a revelation of the Holy Spirit. Mm. And that's a big difference. And since that's the case... It means that you understand God experientially through prayer, through knowledge of him, through the, the grace of the Holy Spirit, not, not simply through writings about God. Okay. Okay? So because of that, I think that we would be much more hesitant to make sweeping generalizations about certain aspects of, of faith and life in Christ because some of those things we just don't believe have been clearly given to us. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, one of the saints, and, and it's, uh, it's argued whether it was St. Uh, Augustine or, or, or Augustine 
or whether it was uh, St. John Chrysostom who says, a comprehended God is no God at all. Mm-hmm. That's really important for us to remember. We are human beings. We have a finite mind. We're created in the image of likeness, in in the image and likeness of God, but we are not gods. And so uh, because of that, our understanding of God is always going to be limited. Mm -hmm. And the language that we use about God will always be limited. So we're left with whatever God has revealed to us in the person of Christ in the life of, of, uh, that's seen in the Holy Scriptures and in the revelation of the Holy Spirit to us. And that generally is something which is passed down and is found in common with many of the people in the life of the church, okay? As opposed to it being like a charismatic occurrence to one person right. you, and creating a system of doctrines based on what one person felt, Mm-hmm. Or one person thinks he experienced. It's the life of the, the whole church. That's right. I think there's a great introduction to liturgy, which uh, because you talked about the, the experience, the um, I guess the subjective appropriation of the life of Christ in a person and in a congregation. But that life of the congregation, the understanding of God by that congregation, is um, is done, is lived out in what might be described as liturgy. Can you kind of describe of uh, what things are done and how the beliefs are experienced through the various liturgies? Yes, I mean... And prayers. You know, the word orthodox means right glory. Ortho is right or straight, correct or straight. You would see that in orthodontists mm-hmm. is straightening your teeth. Uh, orthodoxa. Doxa is glory or worship. So the Orthodox Church considers itself the church of correct worship, right worship. And how we worship is directly related to what we believe. And what we believe is reflected in how we worship. So... Um, one of the liturgical scholars, great liturgical scholars, uh, world-renowned, his name is Robert Taft, and he would say that lex orande as lex credende. Uh, the rule of worship is the rule of faith. Mm. The rule of worship is the rule of faith. What you believe, you will show in your worship, and what you, how you worship reflects what you believe. Um, so for us, we have a liturgical calendar. Uh, the Jews were liturgical people. They were not, uh, quote-unquote, charismatic or like spontaneous in the way they did things. Mm-hmm. There, there was, worship, there, there was um, order. God created the world out of chaos and moved it to order. Mm. Uh, we see that within God's character is, is uh, order uh, in all of the rules that are given to Moses and Aaron. So the nature of God didn't change because of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. If anything, what the coming of our Lord does is it moves us from the shadow to the reality. 
we start with with something which is a type or an antitype, and then we get to the prototype, which is Christ. So what the Jews received from Moses was not to be completely abolished and done away with. Even the Lord says it himself. Mm -hmm. I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. So worship took on a greater meaning and understanding. And we move not from order to chaos, but from order to higher order and, 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 and refinement in our understanding of worship. So you have a liturgical life. When you look in the book of Acts, after the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and his ascension, you still have the apostles going to the temple and praying at the appointed hours. Hmm. You see? You would have thought that because they had a revelation from the Holy Spirit and uh, they knew Christ firsthand, they would have gone and done their own thing. Hmm. But they go and they pray at the appointed hours. So that's still a part of our Orthodox understanding of the day, the day and the week, is that you have uh, hours, certain hours of prayer that can be kept or mm. should be kept if you can keep them. They're kept very strictly in a monastic setting in, in the monasteries by the monks and nuns. And um, <clears throat> what we do in the world here is we have to adapt a little bit to the... to the reality of people's lives here in the Western world. Uh, people have to work. Oftentimes, both people in the house, mother and father, have to work right. uh, or choose to. And so we have a liturgical life, uh, but we don't necessarily have services every single day in order not to uh, perhaps tax the people too much. Mm. They have, they have their lives, and um, we want to give them uh, the ability to balance those things. Right. So we come together, and we have service on Tuesdays and on Thursdays, Saturday evening and Sunday morning. Saturday evening is actually the beginning of the liturgical Sunday. Really? Yeah, so what, what we do on Saturday night is called Great Vespers. It's an evening prayer. Vespers really means evening. So, or evening prayer. If you go and you look in Genesis, evening and then morning, the first day. So that's the Jewish understanding of the day. The day doesn't start when the sun rises. The, the day actually begins after the sun sets. It's, the, it's hmm. the evening first and then the morning. Which is really the scriptural model of, of, of things. Do you get the good news first or the bad news first? <laughs> the bad first, and then comes the, the good. Darkness first, and then light. Death first, and then mm. resurrection from the dead. Uh, so we start in the evening. We prepare ourselves so that we will sleep well and uh, be prepared to meet Christ, our judge, our king, our savior in the morning, and we meet Christ through the partaking of the body and blood of Christ. Okay. So there's a Saturday evening service of preparation for the Sunday. That's correct. Service. That's correct. And it's something too that we encourage people and say to them, you know, if you want to live a genuinely Christian and Orthodox Christian life, 
Saturday night's not a party night. Mm. In, the, in the rest of the world, Saturday night's one of the party nights. Mm-hmm. For us, it can't be because we are preparing to meet Christ our Savior. Every Sunday is a, an opportunity to meet Christ our Savior in more than just hearing his word. No, tangibly we're going to meet him through receiving Holy Communion. Mm-hmm. And that again takes us back to Acts 2.42. And they con- continued steadfastly in the Apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. Mm-hmm. You see? And these prayers, um, the liturgy is very ordered. The, the week is ordered. The day is ordered. The year is ordered. Are these uh, prayers, um, are they the same ones every week? Uh, how, how do those work? Where do these prayers come from? Yes. Um, so you're right. There is an order to the day. There's an order to the week. There's an order to to the seasons. Mm. And we would actually say that the whole world is is actually liturgical. We, you can see it in the, in the four seasons. Mm-hmm. You can see it in the way that we uh, prepare for certain holidays that we celebrate. Like you know, when November comes, you know that there will be pumpkin spice latte on Starbucks menu. Right? That's liturgical. It's becoming a thing. We know that when it hits December, they will move to peppermint mocha. Okay? <laughs> and, and we, Cycles. And, and we go through these traditions in our own homes. So, so liturgical means that it's, um, it's got an order and structure, and it becomes habitual. Okay? Um, so, and every family has some of this. Now, what was the question again that you just asked about, about liturgical? Oh, um, the prayers. The prayers. So, how the prayers come to us is very interesting. Um, often pr- the, the prayers come from different uh, holy men and women of the church. Uh, you have monasteries which began to crop up, especially in the fourth century. And those monasteries were really keen on developing a cycle of prayer mm-hmm. and, um, and routine. And through that, you have many of the prayers that come to us. And then you have these two very specific liturgies that come to us from St. John Chrysostom, who lived in the 4th century, and St. Basil the Great, who lived in the 4th century. And those prayers are basically drawing together all of Scripture into a uh, almost like a synopsis of the way of mm-hmm. God dealing with the world mm-hmm. and dealing with his people from the beginning of time and then kind of laying it out there as a remembrance for the whole community. And, and so when you read the liturgies, the liturgies are filled with scriptural references many, many, many scriptural references. And, um, and so that has, those have been passed down to us uh, to, to our time from the 4th century. I've, I've seen some that go back to those early centuries, say from John Chrysostom, mm-hmm. and even those that have been written more recently, even as, as close as 100 years ago. Uh, I don't know if, if those 
more modern uh, prayers or um, written synopses have been integrated in the, the congregational liturgy, or if it's more of um, a personal reading. I'm, I'm not sure about about those. Do you have any um, insight into? Yeah, I mean the liturgy. The liturgy itself has not really changed much over the last um, something like thousand years. Mm. Not really changed much. Um, the written prayers are there. They don't change much. We do have little portions of the liturgy and vespers and matins that change from week to week based on certain things. Like um, if there's a specific saint who is commemorated or remembered that day, then we have certain movable parts that we change mm. for them. But this general structure is, is very, very much the same. And it's it's... Generally, the liturgy of Saint John Chrysostom, or the liturgy of Saint Basil. That's those are the ones that are done, for the most part. Uh, thank you for those. I think insightful, very helpful explanations. Um, what I'm going to do now is kind of toss out um, a few questions. Um, it kind of putting you on the spot, even more so than I have already. And thank you for being gracious enough to do this. Um, you feel free to pass on these questions if if they're um, if you don't want to answer them. But uh, I'd, I'd be interested in the top threes, like top three areas of agreement that Orthodox may have with uh, Reformed Protestants, and maybe the top three challenges or disagreements or distinctives that the Orthodox may have with a more uh, Reformed Protestant. Mm-hmm. Okay. The number one area of agreement is the life of our church is all about Jesus Christ. And you can see that if you pay attention and you, you even walk into a church, when you walk in, you will notice that the, the preeminent figure will be Christ. Um, like, for instance, if you were able to look up at the ceiling there, we have the icon mm. of Christ, the Pantocrator, on the ceiling, mm. looking over everyone. Okay, And uh, often, as we finish the iconography, you'll see on the left side we'll have the crucifixion here. On the right side will be the resurrection of Christ. Mm. Everything is about Christ. Everything flows from Christ. All of the stuff we do has to be connected to Christ. Even the elevated status that we give to the Virgin Mary mm. is because of Christ. <laughs> it's not because uh, it's because she is his mother. So by virtue of her connection to him, she is special. Mm. So, um, so I think that that's probably one of the main areas of, of real uh, agreement. And our love of Christ is, is, has to be above everything else. The second thing is a love of Scripture. Hmm. We have to have a deep reverence and love of Scripture. Where we might have a distinction, though, and maybe you know we can kind of tie the two together, is that uh, we would, we would argue against Martin Luther's idea of sola scriptura, mm -hmm. meaning the scriptures alone. 
One of the uh, scholars, uh, well-known scholar, his name is Father George Florovsky. He uh, taught at Harvard Divinity School. Um, he has a great quote. He says, tradition is scripture rightly understood. Hmm. I really like that. Tradition is scripture rightly understood. And when I, when I teach our people, I use this approach. I say to them, you have the Constitution of the United States of America. If you've noticed, there's, there's a couple of schools of thought about how you read the Constitution. <laughs> we see headlines about that every day. You see headlines about it. We just had a, a confirmation hearing for a new justice. And, and I assure you, the crux of the matter between one party and the other is how she's going to read that Constitution. There is a group that believes that the Constitution is a living document in the sense that it, it moves and breathes and grows and changes mm. and adapts to your particular circumstances. Right. Well, try that with Scripture and see how it works. It would lead to disastrous consequences. It's living in a different way. It's living it, because it can give you life, mm. but it can only give you life if you enter into it, mm. not if you decide to impose upon it your own artificial meaning from the outside. So, for instance, you have a constitution. The constitution has authority. But ultimately, if we have disagreements between let's say, citizens and legislatures about the proper meaning of that constitution, what will happen? Where will it go? Who will decide the meaning? Yeah, it's yet to be seen. There's conflict and uh, there's always that battle. But it'll end up going to the Supreme Court. Right. And the Supreme Court will it's tell you... Seen a lot of... The Supreme Court will tell you whether it is a proper reading of the Constitution or an incorrect reading of the Constitution. Mm. Now, keep in mind that we've just said that the people who are on the Supreme Court are fallible beings. They can make mistakes. Well, in the life of the church, we believe the same thing when you read Scripture. You have a text. The text can be interpreted in multiple ways. But, ultimately, we trust this group of people who's not a Supreme Court. They are, a, they are the bishops of the church. They met in council together to discuss, to discuss certain open questions in the life of the church. And by the grace of God and the life of the Holy Spirit, they reason with one another, pray together, and expound on the meaning of Scripture so that the rest of the community can gain a benefit and be united. So in that way, we have a deep reverence for Scripture, yet we say there are times when we have to hold to one interpretation and that there is something that has been handed down to us as the tradition. Hmm. Uh, Acts 2.42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Well, what is that doctrine? Mm Mm-hmm. Nobody anywhere in, in, in the New Testament says, this is the apostles' doctrine. <laughs> you see? Um, St. Paul says in one of his letters, I believe it's to the Thessalonians, continue steadfastly 
in what you received from me, whether you received it by word or by letter. Mm-hmm. Meaning, it's not only what he wrote down in the epistles that is authoritative, it's what he delivered to them from his word, holy tradition. Um, St. Paul talks about the definitions of the church. I think this is a place where we maybe have disagreement as well. What, what is the church itself? Um, my understanding often from, from dealing with uh, Protestants and non-denominational folks is that they have a, a, some type of love for the church, but they ultimately will, will reduce the church to being, it's a place where we come to have fellowship with one another as Christians. Um, for us, the church is hospital. The, the, the church fathers, the, the early writers of the church and the early teachers would say that the church is a hospital, not a courtroom. The church is here to help each of us who are sick and to give each of us medicine. Mm-hmm. And so what are some of those medicines? The medicines are the sacraments of the church. Holy communion. Confession. Unction of the sick. Uh, marriage. That's one of the sacraments. It's a medicine of the church. And so all of these things are medicines that sustain the spiritual health of the individual Christian. Um, so I think that that's where we have some, some distinction, that uh, in, in what it is we do as a church. St. Paul says he has different definitions for the church. He says the church is the body of Christ, He says the church is the bride of Christ. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of his definitions of the church, though, is really powerful. He says it is the temple of God, the pillar and foundation of truth. Mm -hmm. The church is the temple of God, the pillar and foundation of truth. So back to that point about scripture. If you had been a Christian living in the first, first century, you wouldn't have had a New Testament. What would you have reached? Where would you have gone to know about Christ? Let's say you lived before the Gospels had been written. Mm-hmm. How would you learn about Christ? You would have learned directly from the apostles and those who they appointed. Mm-hmm. And uh, so instead of us seeing the, the, the New Testament as standalone, we see it as a document which was, um, which was really coordinated by the church. The, the, the church chose the books of the New Testament. Mm-hmm. You can see that in history. There was a time when those books were just loose, separate books. And then sometime in the 3rd or 4th century, there was a pronouncement and an agreement upon which, which letters, which documents would create the New Testament, you see? At that point, it was closed. The, the, the canon was closed. Mm. And no more books were added or taken away from that group. There was controversy, for instance, around the book of uh, Revelation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so we have to be honest. 
Like we, we want to know Christ in truth. We want to ask questions. So we sometimes have to ask really difficult questions, including this one, which is, which was first, the church or the New Testament? <laughs> you see? And if we are, uh, are, are honest, we can dig and find the answers. The Lord talks about the pearl of great price. And he says, when a man finds the pearl of great price, he leaves everything, sells it all in order to obtain that. Mm-hmm. And so for us, it's, a, it's to, to chase after the truth. So I think now we've kind of pointed out two places where we where vary. Yeah. A third would be really the nature of some of the sacraments. Mm. Um, I think, you know, and it's hard to speak about um, definitively about um, Protestant evangelical non-denominational thinking because there's many denominations. But one thing that seems clear is that there is um, uh, often the idea that uh, Holy Communion is a symbol and baptism as a symbol. And what the teaching of the, of the early Christians is, and you don't have to take my word for it, you can just go and read um, the writers of the first, second, third, fourth centuries. Their teaching, which is the teaching of, of, of the church, is that these are not symbols. They are spiritual realities that there actually is something that changes in the bread and wine, something that changes in the baptismal water, so that when a person is baptized, it's not just a symbol of an inward decision for Christ. No. St. Paul talks about baptism. Mm -hmm. He says, when you were baptized, you were buried with Christ and raised again. You went in the old man, you came out the new man. You received forgiveness of sins. You put on Christ. As many as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So all of that, oh, also you become adopted. You become sons of God. So all that happened in our baptism. So far from being a symbolic act, no. The Holy Spirit's present. It's, it's an act that's full of the power of God. And the same for us in Holy Communion. And again, this is one of those places where interpreting the New Testament is crucial. You know, all of the people who uh, created heresies in the life of the church, they all quoted scripture. Oh, yes. Uh, Arius. Arius quoted scripture. Um, Even Jehovah's Witnesses quote scripture. And they twist it. So there has to be, at times, an authoritative interpretation of Scripture. I believe St. Paul says no Scriptures of private interpretation. So we answer to one another in the life of the Church. So the same holds true when we look at Holy Communion. And you have, if you have one side and they say, it's a symbol. It's clear. The other side says, no. It's, it's, it's something else. So what I say is, let's, let's give it to the Supreme Court. Let's mm. go and look at the early Christian documents, the early Christian history. What did the early Christians believe about each of these things? Mm-hmm. They will tell us. They are a, a written witness 
regarding what the Christians believed at that time. So um, it's open to us if we want to know. And, we're, and the thing is, we're not going to sacrifice anything or lose anything. Because if we are genuine in our search for the truth, then Christ is going to bring us into a deeper relationship with him. Right. You see? So then what did we lose? Nothing. Yeah, only the baggage. <laughs> it's like, a, you know, if a man has... Um, uh, he wants to go deeper in his relationship with his wife. He's going to have to make some sacrifices to do that. Mm. Sacrifices of his time, of his focus, mm. even of who he is or how he, he acts in order to grow closer. But if he sits there and laments and thinks about all of the things he's going to lose, he's missing all of the things he's going to gain through the enriched relationship. And I think that that is ultimately um, the best way that I can put it for you. I think that's very helpful. Uh, very, very well said, uh, graciously spoken. Um, I have enjoyed hearing from you. Thank you. Uh, exploring all the historical, theological, and, and personal aspects uh, I think it was a terrific introduction to who the Orthodox, our Orthodox brothers and sisters are, what the Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox in its jurisdictions, what the church is. I hope it has laid a good foundation, the groundwork for further discussion, uh, dialogue, exploration together. And in fact, even though we have to put uh, a limit on this conversation right now, we do have plans to explore further some of these questions. That, that, that I have a lot of questions that we, we just there's no time for. Mm. But uh, we do want to set aside some time for a further dialogue, uh, exploring some of these questions, and um, getting even further, even deeper into uh, those areas of agreement, mm -hmm. um, and kind of fleshing out those areas of why and how we may still disagree. Um, and so up to this point in the conversation, I hope you have benefited greatly from this. I, I hope you will stick with us for further conversations. And uh, Father James, once again, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. God bless you. You've been listening to Grace Matters, conversations establishing believers in the truth.